for working so hard this last week to lead us in worship uh, on Wednesday night and this morning. That was uh, one of the specials they did um, this past Wednesday night. And after it was done, I told Chris, I said, man, we got to do that again. That's such a powerful song. Uh, and they worked so hard to uh, learn that and, and uh, present that to us. And I love that line uh, that says, sons of disgrace are righteous made. And uh, what a perfect line to lead us back to the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 1, and particularly verses 16 and 17. We began looking at this uh, pinnacle passage uh, of this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman churches, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 16. Let me reread our text and as we go back to it uh, today. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Father, we thank you for uh, the reminder that we've already had in that last song that we who are guilty, disgraceful sinners have been made righteous through the righteousness of Christ. This undeserved gift, this unearned gift that you so lovingly and mercifully provided for us I pray that you would help us to understand this concept of your righteousness a little better today, that we would go a little deeper in our thinking about it, Lord, that it might usher forth from our hearts, our lives with the greater praise and greater obedience, Lord, as we seek not just to place our faith in Christ, but to live by faith every day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we began last week uh, talking about one of the most well-known characters in church history, Martin Luther, and what is arguably the most important event in church history, and that is the Protestant Reformation. Now, sadly, I think many Christians alive today uh, don't know about the Reformation or they don't appreciate the Reformation. And, and what we need to realize is that in the providence of God, we live in an era in the history of the church where it's very easy to take this for granted, to take church for granted. You see, if we lived back in medieval times or the Middle Ages or what it was often referred to as the Dark Ages, church would have been an, an entirely different experience than it is for us today. We wouldn't have sung songs together like we just have because there was no congregational singing in the church in those days. We, we wouldn't be listening to a sermon uh, like we're doing now because there was no preaching in the church in those days. But worst of all, we wouldn't have ever heard a clear accurate presentation of the gospel, which means that we would have all 
lived and died and been condemned to hell for all eternity because we didn't know the truth of salvation. You see, back in the, the 1500s, a church under the Roman papacy had totally corrupted what the Bible teaches about how a person is saved from sin and death and hell. And church was all about beliefs and traditions established by popes and church councils rather than what the Bible says. And so maintaining these man-made rules and rituals was the means by which a person earned or merited their own salvation. And the only hope a person had of, of ever getting to heaven was, was living a life of good works, or uh, if, if that wasn't good enough, that he would have that second chance of maybe having someone else pray their way out of purgatory or buy them out of purgatory through some indulgence. And so Luther grew up in this works-based system of salvation, and it was a system. And uh, he spent his in his, his early college years as a, as a monk trying to earn his way to heaven by his own good works. And we talked about this last week. He fasted and he prayed and he, he whipped himself and he confessed his sins constantly to the priests to the point of frustrating them. And he even traveled to Rome on a pilgrimage, which, which again, if you know any Roman Catholics today, this is very common practices that, that are still going on. And... Uh, pilgrimages to Rome are, are a common thing. And it was on that, that pilgrimage, as he crawled on his knees up the scale of sancta, the holy staircase. By the way, uh, someone told me after last week's sermon, somebody who's a member of our church that came out of Roman Catholicism, that they had actually climbed those steps on their knees when they were a young, uh, young girl. Their, their dad had brought them over to Rome. And she actually climbed up those steps thinking that that was part of her salvation. And she was rejoicing in, in, in her salvation by grace through faith alone. But it was on those, those steps, that, that holy staircase, that, that Luther remembered the words of the prophet Habakkuk that said, who said, the just shall live by what? By faith. And that moment on those so-called sacred steps that were brought from the Holy Land, right, where Jesus had walked up and even had left his blood drops on those stairs, right, it was, it was on those, those, those sacred steps that, that was a turning point in Luther's life. Up until then, he was tormented, um, trying to, to measure up to what he considered this un unattainable, perfect standard of righteousness, that God had established. He even admitted that he didn't love God, he hated God for making it so hard to be right with him. And it was through that experience on those steps and, and also studying the book of Romans that it became clear to him that, that neither he nor anyone could merit salvation by crawling up steps or performing any other good works, but by simply and solely trusting in the work that Christ has accomplished in his sinless life and his substitutionary death. Remember those two phrases, sinless life and substitutionary death, because both of those are vital to our salvation. And it was Romans 1.17 where Paul quoted the same verse from Habakkuk that came to Luther's mind on the scale of sancta that God used to ultimately convince Luther 
of what the rest of the reformers later called sole fide, which is Latin for what? Faith alone. In other words, a person is not and cannot be saved by faith plus good works, plus getting baptized, faith plus going to church and taking communion, faith plus confirmation, faith plus giving certain money, you know, giving to charity and going on mission trips, and faith plus, faith plus, faith. No, no, this, the good news of the gospel is there is nothing that we can do to be saved. Salvation is a free gift that God provides all those who place their faith in what God has done for them in Christ. Or in Paul's momentous words here in verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This is the most important verse in the book of Romans. And it serves as the key, really, to unlocking the rest of this profound explanation of God's plan to save unrighteous sinners from his wrath. We mentioned this uh, last week that the theme of the book of Romans is righteousness. Uh, that's why our outline, uh, the, the roadmap to Romans that you have hopefully in the front of your, 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 your uh, book of Romans uh, in your own Bible, uh, it's all about righteousness. There's a theme that just weaves itself through the entire book. And namely, how God graciously gives his righteousness to unrighteous sinners who place their faith in his son Jesus. And that's sort of the title that we're going with here. How a gracious God makes guilty sinners right with him through faith in Jesus. And um, here in verse 17 is the first time Paul mentions this word righteousness. And uh, he used this word in one way or another over 60 times. It's a word that you see pop up as righteous or just or justified or justification. These are all the same word in the Greek. And the one section in the letter that contains the most concentrated use of these terms is in chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. Turn over there just for a moment. And again, we've looked at this paragraph uh, already, but I, 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 think, I don't think it can be overstated in, in saying this. If, if, if chapter 1, verse 17 is the most important verse in Romans, then chapter 3, verses 21 through 28 is the most important paragraph in Romans. Listen to what Paul said. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation for his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if that sounds familiar, 
to what we were studying last week in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, there's a reason, and that's because, really, you could take out chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, and, and pretend that's not even there, and it would read perfectly uh, from chapter 1, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 21. In fact, uh, what chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20 actually is, is this this, this rabbit trail that Paul takes us on and took the readers of, of this letter on uh, to prove that man lacks righteousness, that man is not righteous, and that's why we need the righteousness of God. And so really he picks up uh, in chapter 3, verse 21, and describes in more detail Chapter 1, verse 17. And so, notice verse 27 here. Again, back in chapter 3. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law or of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by what? Faith apart from works of the law. Again, if you're familiar with Paul's writing, this is not earth-shattering. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one, what? Will boast. Not of works. So that no one will boast. And so here he is saying the same thing. Where is the boasting? Who can boast? None of us can get to heaven or will get to heaven and say, well, you know, good job. You know, I got here on my own. Way to go, good hustle. You know, we can't walk around, hey, good hustle, good job. It's like glory to God, glory to Christ. We're only here because of what he's done for us. And so again, this paragraph, this all-important paragraph in Romans chapter 3, uh, he's just expanding on what he stated briefly in chapter 1, verse 17. And so this helps us understand what Paul was thinking regarding God's righteousness. In other words, this is what's called the analogy of Scripture. If we're to understand this phrase, which is just a simple phrase, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, you're like, okay, that's, Paul, could you give us a little more to go on? Well, he does. He gives us more to go on in chapter 3, verse 21 through 28. And so in what was in Paul's mind back in chapter 1, when he was just introducing the subject of the righteousness of God, the gospel, particularly and, and specifically the righteousness of God in the gospel, was simply that the righteousness of God is who God is, it's what God does, and it's what he gives. In other words, a, a, a complete, comprehensive understanding of this, this fundamental subject of God's righteousness includes all three of the ways that this verse has been interpreted throughout church history. And again, I mentioned this, that there's a ton of ink that's been spilled trying to, to, to explain what did Paul mean by the righteousness of God. Well, just turn over to chapter 3, verse 21 to 28, and, it, and, and you can discover what he meant. It's not a mystery. The righteousness of God is God's character. It's an attribute of God he, that, that he's perfectly holy. He always does, does what is right. He always does what is just. He always does what is fair. And we know that if we are to live forever and eternity with him in heaven, we must be 
righteous as He is righteous. Whereas Jesus said, be perfect even as God is perfect. That's the part that Luther hated. How, how is that possible? I'll never be perfect enough, good enough to get to heaven. So God's righteousness or the, the, the righteousness of God is, is, his, is His character. It's also an activity. It's His act of justifying unrighteous sinners by sending His Son Jesus to fulfill all righteousness and to satisfy all the righteous requirements of divine justice through his sinless life and his substitutionary death. Again, remember those two phrases, sinless life and substitutionary death. They're both important to our justification, our righteousness. And it's also, when he says the righteousness of God, it's, an, it's, a, it's a gift. that God gives us a gift of righteousness that he gives people on the basis of their faith in Christ by imputing or crediting or transferring his righteousness to their account. And we said that, that, that this righteousness that God provides us is, is, is sometimes referred to as an alien righteousness. An alien, right? When you think about an alien, what do you think about? It's somebody that comes from another, from outer space, right? From another planet. They're not from here. Well, that's the point. The righteousness that God provides us is not from this planet. It's from another. It's from somewhere else. It's from outer space. It's from heaven. It's heavenly righteousness. It's also called radical righteousness, meaning something radical has to happen in order to make a, a, an unrighteous sinner righteous. There's nothing you can do. It's something radical has to happen. God has to come and replace our sin nature with an entirely new nature. And it's that radical righteousness where I came up with the word to describe this, one of the reasons why Paul was not ashamed to preach the gospel. And that's really all this theology comes, comes uh, really, Paul was simply describing here in verses 16 and 70 why he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so what we're, we looked at last week are uh, just three reasons that we should never be ashamed of the gospel. That, that why, why are we gun shy? Why are we so often gun shy to tell people about Jesus? We need to be gung-ho about Sharing the gospel like Paul was. Why? Well, number one, it's effectual. We need not be ashamed of the gospel because of what it does. It, it changes lives. Paul himself had experienced the transforming power of the gospel in his own life. He, he traveled from city to city and he witnessed the power of the gospel change countless people's lives. And, and he knew the gospel would be effectual in Rome as well. Why else should we not be ashamed of the gospel? Well, because it's universal. Because of who it does it to. Not, not just because of what it does, but who it does it to. It does it to everyone who believes. Notice, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, the gospel is not an exclusive message to particular individuals or a particular group of people. It's a message that God wants everyone to hear and everyone to embrace. You say, well, why does it say to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Well, we just need to understand that as God's chosen people, 
and the nation through whom salvation came to the rest of the world, the Jews, the nation of Israel, got first dibs or, or first right of refusal in regards to the salvation that God offered through Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. And when the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God extended the invitation of salvation to the Gentiles. And we're going to learn a lot more about that in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. But all we need to know now is that the gospel is to be presented without distinction to both Jews and Gentiles. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 11, I love what it says here. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the gospel is universal. But then thirdly, and this is where we, we ended or, or kind of got hung up here and, and, and needed another week to talk about, is this, is this whole idea that the gospel is radical. The gospel is radical. I mean, in other words, not, not just what it does or who it does it to, but how it does it. How, how does the gospel do its work? Well, the way Paul described it here, he says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, again, it's, it's critical that we understand what Paul said here because how we interpret this verse determines how we interpret the rest of the letter. And again, I came up with a statement just to simplify you know, all the different views and, 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 and all the things I read and, and just not, not to, to uh, bog you down in the details, just simply to say this, our righteous God demonstrates his righteousness by giving us his righteousness. Now, it sounds like maybe double talk there, but that's, I, I don't know of a better way of, of, of explaining it, simply, that this righteousness that Paul's referring to, the righteousness of God, is the righteousness, uh, this, this is the righteousness God is, this is the righteousness that God accomplishes or demonstrates, and this is the righteousness that he gives to sinners so we can be righteous even as he is righteous. And I ended with the quote last week, and I'm going to read it again because I think it's worth rereading. Just so you know, I haven't lost my mind. There's, there's, there's other commentaries that try to make sense of this phrase, and, and, and there's no other way to do it but then just to pile up words to include every aspect of the righteousness of God. Here's John Stott. I have never been able to see why we have to choose and why there why all three should not be combined. I talked about this, the different views, and why can't we all see them as one? And this is how he describes it. He says, the righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own but his. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust. Are you with me so far? (laughs) 
His righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous, in which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us, he has done it through Christ, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. Right? And he does it by faith when we put our trust in him. While the righteousness of God may be may seem or appear complicated to understand. There's nothing complicated about faith. Notice what he says. He says, For in it the righteousness of him is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, the righteousness of God is not given to us based on our, what? Our works. It's totally unachievable by human effort. It comes to us only and entirely by faith from start to finish. And I think that's the simplest way to understand that phrase from faith to faith. The the righteousness of God comes to us by faith from start to finish, from beginning to end. It's all faith. In other words, we cannot depend on anything we can do in order to make ourselves right with God. Only God can make us right with Him if we cast ourselves completely on the work that Christ has done for us. And again, this phrase, uh, from faith to faith, is, I think, just going back to what he said in verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes. And he already mentioned the importance of faith back in verse 5. When he says, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of what? Faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. And so now he's talking about expanding on this concept of obedient faith and what does it mean to believe? He says, for it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Notice, as it is written... Again, what was Paul doing there? He, he wanted his readers to know that he was not teaching anything new, anything novel here. This has always been God's plan to justify sinners by grace through faith alone. In fact, this truth was originally revealed in the Old Testament. And then he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. He says, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I want you to turn back to Habakkuk. You're like, oh, no, I hope he wasn't going to ask me to do that because I don't think I know where that is. But just turn to the beginning of the New Testament and then you should see Malachi and just start going backwards. Then there's Zechariah. Then there's Haggai. Then there's Zephaniah. And then there's Habakkuk. There it is. It's page 799. If you have my Bible, right? 799. Look at the, the, the book of Habakkuk for a second. And I want you to see this, this verse in its original context. The book of Habakkuk is interesting in that um, Habakkuk was looking at the disobedience of the nation of Judah. He's like, God, why, I don't understand. How, how can... You know, those that are disobeying you are prospering, but those of us who are trying to honor you are not. And uh, this doesn't seem fair. It doesn't make sense to me. And he was basically complaining and protesting 
to the Lord. And he says, oh, oh Habakkuk, I, I get it. I, I see it. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. In fact, I'm going to bring the Babylonians to punish Judah. And Habakkuk's like, okay, God, now I really don't understand. Because, yeah, I know we're a bunch of knuckleheads here in Israel, and we've not been honoring you, but compared to the Babylonians, really, God, you're going to use somebody who's a group of people that are far more disobedient, far more sinful than we are to punish us? And again, he began to complain and protest about God's plan to raise up the ruthless Babylonians to punish Israel. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And simply put, I think God was correcting Habakkuk and at the same time comforting Habakkuk by reminding him Hey, Habakkuk, you just need to what? Trust me. You just need to trust me. The just or the righteous will live by his faith. You need to just relax and, 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 and lean upon me and let, let me be God. And, and, and I will fulfill my promises to rescue and deliver the nation of Israel. And it may not be the way you would or when you would, but trust me, it's going to happen. And Habakkuk heard the message from the Lord that he needed to trust him. In fact, what a beautiful demonstration, example, I guess, or an expression. Maybe that's the best way to say it. What a beautiful expression of faith in chapter 3. Verse 16, if you're still in Habakkuk, maybe some of you are just finally finding it, right? Did you, you there? No? Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound, my lips quivered, decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. This is how he concludes his prophecy here is, is, you know what? I mean, this thing is all over me. I, I, I heard about it. I heard what was going to happen. And, and my lips began to quiver and I was trembling because I had to wait for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. I just had to wait for this whole thing to go down and the Babylonians to come and, and destroy my people. But then here's the expression of faith. You ready? Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. By the way, that's not a big deal for us, but if you were an agricultural society, that's a big deal. That's worst case scenario, what he just described there. Yet, verse 18, I will exult in the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my, what? Salvation. I'm going to trust that God is going to save me even when all hope is lost. When it looks like we're completely being devastated by the Babylonians. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to rejoice 
in the God of my salvation. In other words, I know that God will ultimately save us, will ultimately deliver us. It's interesting, this verse is quoted, Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted two other places uh, in the New Testament. Look at Galatians chapter 3.11. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11. Which by the way, Galatians has been referred to as a a miniature version of Romans because it was written to remind the, the churches in the Galatian region that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But notice in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, well, why is it evident? Well, because the Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, the fact that no one can be justified by keeping the law or doing good works is evident Why? Because the Bible says the righteous man shall live by faith. It's used another time, a third time, in Hebrews chapter 10. Look over there, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. The writer of Hebrews is telling them they need to endure For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. He's quoting there, Habakkuk 2.4. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is interesting. Notice how the writer develops this. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And by the way, just... Let your eyes go down the page. What's the very next chapter? Hebrews chapter 11, the the great faith chapter. The hall of faith. All these men and women of the Old Testament who demonstrated faith, trust in the Lord. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the Bible's definition of faith. But, but notice back in verse 38, but the righteous one shall live by faith as, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Interesting, whatever that shrinking back means, you end up going to hell. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. What's going on here? Well, I think it's an indication that, that, that true saving faith is not just a one-time event. Faith is a, is a way of life. The, the initial act of faith, right, when we come to Christ, leads to an ongoing, growing trust in Christ that lasts a lifetime. It endures until the end. In other words, there's there's a natural connection between coming to faith and living by faith. And if you're not living by faith, there's a question whether you actually come to faith. This is what we know as the perseverance of the saints. 
that all those who are truly saved will persevere until the end. In other words, no true believer will ever become an unbeliever. Another way of saying it is a, eternal life is granted to a true believer who has been declared righteous by God through their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ, and their faith may falter. Does our faith not falter at times? We waver at times. We, our faith is weak at times. But we'll never fall away from the faith. And I think that's what Paul was communicating in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister." Does that mean you can lose your salvation? No. That's not what Paul was teaching. You can't lose your salvation. He was saying, if you, what, don't remain, if you don't continue in your faith, if you don't uh, remain steadfast and, and established, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, then it's probably because you never truly embraced the gospel. Again, this is, what we refer to from a human perspective as the perseverance of the saints, I prefer to look at it from God's perspective as, as the preservation of the saints. That God preserves those who are truly His. He's not only the author of our faith, He's the, what? Perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that. And so there's a lot going on here in Romans verse, chapter 1, verse 17, when it says, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Not just get saved by faith, right? But shall live by faith. Being a Christian is not a one-time experience. It's a lifestyle that we live by grace through faith alone. Now, I don't usually care for all the many modern-day translations that are out there. They seem to water down the teaching of Scripture most of the time, but I was impressed with how the New Living Translation translated verse 17. This is the New Living Translation. This good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the Scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. I think that's a very good paraphrase 
of what Paul was saying here. Let me read it again. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. We began this study of these two verses by considering the testimony of Martin Luther. I want to end by considering the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3, and I I just want to return to where we recently studied together before we dove into the book of Romans. we, we, We studied the book of Philippians, and you'll probably remember this, this, this portion. This was probably my favorite section of, of, of Philippians when we, when we studied together. But here in, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul shares his testimony. And again, we're going to see now the analogy of Scripture at work or, or the power or the helpfulness of cross-referencing. Because the same guy who wrote Romans chapter 1 verse 17 wrote Philippians chapter 3 or we should say the same spirit, right, that wrote Romans 1.17, wrote Philippians chapter 3. And so we're going to see how this all fits together perfectly. And, and it's just a way to verify or confirm that we've interpreted what Paul said in Romans 1.17 accurately, okay? So let's see if we're on track. Let's see if, it, if he says the same thing here in Philippians chapter 3. Notice what he says in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And here he goes. He kind of flashes his, his spiritual resume here. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But, but by the way, those are all the good works, all the things he had worked so hard to accomplish. But, he says, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So again, there was a lot of similarities between Martin Luther and the Apostle Paul in that they spent the early years of their life seeking to earn their own righteousness by their spiritual accomplishments. And so Paul is essentially talking in financial terms here, kind of as an accountant. He's giving giving an appraisal of his his past life, and he's got his spiritual balance sheet, and typically on a balance sheet, you have all your assets on one side and all your losses on the other. And he had this huge list of assets, things that people would die for. Man, I wish I had that. I wish I could claim that on my resume, my spiritual resume. Well, I wish that was in my bank account. And he recognized all those things that he 
at one point saw as assets, he, he said, no, all those things are actually losses. It's like he flipped his whole spreadsheet over and said, no, those are actually losses. Those aren't benefiting me at all. He said, I counted them all as loss. In other words, he, he filed spiritual bankruptcy. He, he just said, you know what? I don't have what it takes, even with all this long list of things that I've accomplished, I still don't have what it takes to pay the debt that I owe to God because of my sin. So I'm bankrupt. He declared spiritual bankruptcy. I, I can't pay my debt myself. Notice he says, I count all these things but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And here it is, verse 9, and may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That one verse, verse 9, is... Is, is critical that we understand. What is he saying here? He abandoned his own self-righteous efforts to earn salvation by keeping the regulations that God had, had given to the nation of Israel. And instead he just places faith alone in the work of Christ. The work that Christ accomplished to secure the salvation of those who would repent and believe. And up until that point, until Paul came to know Christ, he had misunderstood the purpose of the law. He'd always viewed the law as something that God expected him to keep in order to be considered righteous before him. But once he came to know Christ, he realized that, that God had intended the law for ex the exact opposite purpose. To prove that no one is righteous in and of themselves. Romans chapter 10, or excuse me, Romans chapter 3 verse 10, he's going to tell us. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands God. And so for years, he'd been striving to earn his own righteousness by meticulously keeping the law. But then he discovered this glorious truth of the gospel that no matter how hard you try, you will never be righteous enough for God to let you into heaven. Because as Isaiah said, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, all our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. It amounts to nothing to earn a right standing before God. And the fact that you and I will never be righteous enough for God to let us into heaven is why he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to live the life that we failed to live and to die the death that we deserved to die. Remember I said to remember those two statements or phrases, Christ's sinless life and substitutionary death. You see, Christ lived a perfect life when he was here on earth. He, he's the only person who ever kept the law perfectly. And yet at the same time, he also died to pay the penalty for all of us who failed to keep the law perfectly. 
And it was by living and dying in our place that Christ earned, achieved, accomplished the righteousness that God requires. It's what's referred to by theologians as the active and passive obedience of Christ. And, and we need both. We need to trust in both, have faith in both. Have you ever wondered why God just didn't send his son from heaven straight to Calvary? He could have just sent him straight to earth and had him die on a cross. That's not what he did. There was 33 years that happened before that. Why? Because he had to fulfill all righteousness. So Christ, it's not just Christ's death that we trust in it's Christ's life, his sinless life and his substitutionary death. And so that righteousness is attributed to everyone who believes that they can only be saved because of the work that Christ has done for them in his life and in his death. Notice he says here in verse 9, that I may be found not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. There's the alien righteousness. It's coming from God. It's not here. It's not in me. And those who place their faith alone in Christ's life and his death are given the gift of righteousness from God. And this is the only kind of righteousness God accepts. You can't show up in heaven and whip out your spiritual business card, your credit card, and say, here, sorry. He only takes his righteousness, the kind that is produced by him and, and, and provided by him. It's a gift which must be accepted, not earned. You say, well, how do I accept that? How do I receive that righteousness? Well, it's very simple. You crumple up your religious resume, if you will, that you've been trusting in to make you right with God and confess to Him that you lack the righteousness that He requires of you to get to heaven. I don't have what it takes. And I never will, no matter how long I live, no matter what I do, I will never be righteous enough on my own. I need the righteousness that you provide through Christ. And again, we looked at this last, last week, but this is such an important verse, it wouldn't hurt to reread it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what we call the doctrine of imputation, where something is transferred or credited to another person's account. And so when Christ died on the cross, our sinful unrighteousness was imputed or transferred to his account. And when we place our faith in Christ's substitutionary death, his sinless righteousness is imputed or transferred to our account. 
In other words, God treated Christ as if he lived our sinful life so that he could treat us like we lived his sinless life. It's an amazing thing. There's an example in the Old Testament you may remember me referencing when we went through Philippians, but I want you to turn back there, another challenging place to find Zechariah. <laughs> but again, you're already, you already found a back. If you found a back hook, you can find Zechariah. Just go a little bit to the right now of Habakkuk. But Zechariah chapter 3, I love this picture. This is a, just a beautiful picture of the doctrine of imputation. And again, it's, this, is not a new, this is not a New Testament concept. This is an Old Testament concept. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua... Here's Zechariah giving his prophecy. He said, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. What's all this commotion? What's all the ruckus about? Well, he's got dirty clothes. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So here's Joshua, the high priest of Israel standing before God, and he's accused, he's being accused by Satan as being unworthy. you got no business being here. Look at you. By the way, that's all of our experience. Romans 12.10 talks about how Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them before our God day and night. In other words, we come before the holy presence of God and like, he doesn't belong to be here. God, look at this guy. What a mess she is. Look at their sin. Look at what they just did. Look what they just said. Do you know what they think? You know, look at, God, Satan is always accusing us as if we've got no business being in the presence of God. And Joshua had nothing to say. He was speechless because after all, he was dressed in filthy garments and, and he had no defense before the judge. And again, this, I think, represents how we all appear as sinful before God in all the filthy rags of our own unrighteousness. And God rebukes Satan and, and, and says, hey, this is, one, this, is, this is a guy I've rescued like a piece of wood plucked out of a fire. Is, that, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Guess what? That's you. That's me. We, we were plucked out of the fires of hell by the grace of God. This is one that I've plucked from the fire. And God rebukes Satan and rescues Joshua here and, and, and provided Joshua with clean garments, which made him acceptable to stand in the presence of God. 
And again, I think this is just a profound picture of how God removes our sin and robes us in the righteousness of Christ, which makes us presentable before him. This is just one of many illustrations, one of many passages in the Bible. It's all over the place. that makes it so clear that salvation cannot be earned by our works, but it can only be received by grace through faith alone in the sinless life and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. I mean, all you got to do is go back to Romans. Romans chapter 4 and... Um, notice what Paul is going to tell us here. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 22, therefore it is also credited to him as righteous. Now to him, not, 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 not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who delivered over he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And then look at chapter 9. I want to show you how this is going to come to a climax here in that odd section of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11. And so many people kind of just skip over because it just seems kind of nebulous and maybe even unnecessary. But look at Romans chapter 9 talking about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? These guys weren't even working at it. And they, they, they received righteousness by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. In other words, here was the Jews trying to work their way to heaven, earn God's righteousness on their own. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. who was Christ. Just as is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And then notice what Paul says. His heart goes out to his people. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify, testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Man, they are really spiritual people. They are working really hard for not knowing about God's righteousness and is seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then notice verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus said, Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in what? righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting 
in salvation. How about you? Are you zealous for the Lord? But is your zeal without knowledge? In other words, you don't know about God's righteousness and how you receive it as a gift. And so you're working, trying to make it to heaven based on your own righteousness. And so therefore you don't subject yourself to the righteousness of God. You don't just submit and say, okay, I I give, I can't do it. Never have been, never will be good enough. I submit, I trust you, God, that you've accomplished it all through Christ. Are you trusting in what you have done or what Christ has done? You see, the difference between Paul and Luther is this. They they, they seem very similar, don't they? Looking at their testimony side by side, it sounds almost like two brothers from another mother, right? Spiritually speaking. But you know what was the difference? This is the difference between Paul and Luther. Luther felt like he could never be good enough to get to heaven. But Paul thought he was, what? More than good enough to get to heaven. Luther needed hope while Paul needed to be humbled. And it was the righteousness of God that provided what they both needed. It gave hope to a self-conscious monk and it humbled a self-righteous Pharisee. Who are you more like? Are you more self-conscious like Luther? Always living under condemnation, feeling like you'll never be good enough? Are you more self-righteous like Paul and saying, you know, I can't believe that, oh, this world we live in and man, you know, I'm, I'm so glad, you know, I'm not like those people and we just kind of toot our own horn. Listen, either way, there's good news. <laughs> Whether you're self-conscious or you're self-righteous, there's good news for you today. And the good news is this. It's the gospel. Which gives hope to those of you who don't feel good enough to get to heaven. And the gospel also humbles those of you who think you're good enough to get to heaven. The bottom line is, do you believe the gospel? Not have you heard the gospel, not can you explain the gospel, but do you believe the gospel? Let's pray. Father, what an amazing concept, this this righteousness that you are, that you demonstrate, and that you provide for us. Lord, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who, up to this point, all they've ever known is trying to be a good person and do the best you can and kind of cross your fingers and hope for the best and not having the confidence, not knowing for sure that they'll go to heaven when they die, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation, that you would open up their eyes to see, to to know, to understand the righteousness 
that you require is not in them and never will be in them, but it's in Christ. And they would just cast their hope, Father, on Christ, and they would just humble themselves before Christ and his sinless life, his substitutionary death, as the only way that they will ever be right with you and the only way they can know for sure that they're going to heaven. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the book of Romans. I pray that you would cause our, uh, our minds just to marinate in these truths. Lord, that we would understand them better and apply them uh, more obediently in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.